Welcome back to Curbside Consults. My name is Leslie Chang, and I'm one of the New England Journal of Medicine editorial fellows for the 2021-2022 academic year. Today, we will be discussing the recently published guidelines for the management of heart failure. These guidelines were developed jointly by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association and are hot off the press, published just at the beginning of April in the journal Circulation. Joining us today is Dr. Clyde Yancey. Dr. Yancey is a Chief of Cardiology in the Department of Medicine at the Feinberg School of Medicine and a former chair of the Guideline Writing Committee and a senior member of that committee that put together these updated guidelines. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Chang, thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Let me add to your introduction, though, that this document, importantly, is also co-sponsored by the Heart Failure Society of America. That's not just being precise. That's actually demonstrating the alignment of professional organizations with slightly different perspectives saying, this is an important statement in all three organizations that represent practice community, the scientific discovery community, and the subspecialty community have come together and said, we endorse this process and we endorse this document. Thanks for that addition. I'm really excited for this discussion. I feel like not a day goes by in the hospital when I don't have a patient with heart failure on my rounding list. In previous episodes, we spent some time discussing the process by which guideline committees evaluated evidence and published these guidelines. Today, let's start off by discussing the importance of class of recommendation, as we might reference this later on in our discussion. Can you tell us a little bit? Let's talk a little bit about the process, and I'll make this pithy. Once upon a time, since I've been involved in guideline writing for nearly 20 years, once upon a time, people with pretty strong opinions got in a room, questions were put on the table. There was an evidence base, but modest as it was, and decisions were made typically based on those with the strongest voice, the strongest opinions, to rank order that evidence and say, well, this is what everybody should do. This makes the most sense to me. I'm delighted to say that the process has evolved considerably since then. It is structured now in a very rigid process that, that includes informaticians. What that means is that there are people that are actually trained to pull all of the literature, not just the randomized controlled trials and observational studies, but the gray literature to really try to understand what's the totality of information that exists addressing a topic area and then place that information agnostically in a hierarchical scheme based on the quality of evidence. This is much more sophisticated, Dr. Chang, than it was ever intended to be in the beginning, but it served us for the good. We know that our data sets now are irrefutable and allows us to make statements that really guide the right direction. There are two tiers that the user should appreciate. One tier is the strength of recommendation that surely based on is the benefit so much greater than the risk that this really is an is recommended approach. The other tier is not based on the class of recommendation, but the quality of the evidence. You should know when something is strongly supported, when something is modestly supported, or when there's still consensus opinion, we try to limit the use of that. The third thing the end user should appreciate is that language is important. We specifically use as a class recommendation what is recommended for a 2A, we say should be considered, and for 2B, we should say may be considered or is of uncertain value. And then for a class three recommendation, should not be done or is not beneficial. Thank you so much for that context. For those who are going through the guidelines, I think it's packed with really good information. They're quite long, though, and let's jump right into what the new updates are. 
since we have listeners from various levels of training, could you give us a quick summary of the pathophysiology of heart failure and some of the terms we might be using like HEFREF, HEFPEF, so we have a bit of context to understand these guidelines? So I'm happy to do so. This is where we get into the meat of the discussion. I want everyone to appreciate that separately, there's a new document published in 2021 that represents an amalgam of the international societies that focus on heart failure that describes a new universal definition. That's not incorporated in this guideline statement in part because it's a standalone, but that's a very important document that allows one to precisely define the condition. We used to say it was any condition where the heart is incapable of matching the metabolic or exercise needs of the body. That's a nice, eloquent definition, but it's very difficult to study. Now, the definition requires the following. There must be structural and or functional abnormalities of the heart. There must be prototypical symptoms of heart failure. And, and this is the important caveat, there must be corroboration based on either an elevated naturopathic peptide level, biomarkers, more generally speaking, or objective measurement of congestion. That's a much more operational definition. And I would strongly advise resident physicians, fellows, early career faculty to become facile with that universal definition. Importantly, it allows us to articulate who doesn't have the disease. So let's let that be a standalone. Now, what about the other categorizations? Everybody in the universe has heard over and over terms like have ref, have have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. It's been represented in every guideline over the last 20 years. Only recently was the guideline emphasis on HEFPEF heightened so we can understand how important it is to think of that separately. But now we've gone to the next level. So let me be very clear. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction remains extant defined as an ejection fraction less than 40%. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction remains an extant category, defined as an ejection fraction greater than 50%. The space between 40 and 50 is no longer no man's land or some fuzziness in the echo lab. It's recognized that this is a defined phenotype of heart failure. But what's really important about this heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction is that we now have data to guide how we should approach it. But there's a fourth category. This is heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Now, why this particular emphasis? Let's again get back to what that means for the patient that previously had HEF-REF with an ejection fraction less than 40%. And there's been at least a 10 point, that is absolute percent point increase in ejection fraction to greater than 40% associated with the introduction of evidence-based medical therapy, we term that as heart failure with improved ejection fraction. What's more important about that is really sound observational data informs us that the natural history for that patient population is quite different, meaning that of that 10 to 15% of patients with HEFREP who realized this really remarkable response to medical interventions and device interventions with a residual ejection fraction that's now about 40%. We know that the morbidity and mortality appears to be different. Thank you so much for taking us through that, Dr. Yancey. If I'm hearing you right, it sounds like it's important to categorize these patients by ejection fraction because it also affects treatment and management decisions. 
One of the first pages of the guidelines has a list of the top 10 take-home messages, and I would encourage everyone to take a look at this list when they get a chance. One of the big changes that caught my eye was that there's two new medications, ARNI and SGLT2 inhibitors, now in the guideline-directed medical therapy armamentarium. Can you talk to us a little bit about guideline-directed medical therapy, or GDMT? So this really is a sweet spot in our discussion today, Leslie. But the other sweet spot is the top 10 take-home messages. It's easy to find online. I won't go through all 10, but I just want to highlight for the audience's benefit why we thought there were 10 important call-outs. We think this is important because it highlights what's uniquely different. So for example, one of the top 10 is a phenotype to which I just referred, this phenomenon of heart flow with improved ejection fraction. Another very important top 10 observation is the realization that for the first time ever, we actually have therapies appropriate for patients with TTR, amyloid cardiomyopathy, and heart failure. This is a medical breakthrough. Yes, the therapies are very expensive, but the science is brilliant. Other therapies are on the way, but importantly for those patients that previously had no option, that option exists. Two other points in the top 10 that I think really merit unique emphasis. One of those points is for the first time ever, we've introduced value assessments. So if you think about the medical therapies to which you just referred, Dr. Cheng, and we'll get to those in just a moment, we not only review the evidence with regards to morbidity and mortality improvements, but we look at the cost of therapies referable to the benefit of those therapies. And we use published literature, typically cost-effective analysis, to really provide the end user a value assessment. This is the first time this has ever appeared in a guideline and allows us to take a step back and say, in a world where therapeutics are becoming more and more expensive, we think it's the important right next step for the guideline process to actually categorize value. And then the fourth, and I'm only highlighting four at the top 10, only because they're so uniquely important, strong emphasis on prevention, strong emphasis on prevention. Yes, heart failure has become this very elaborate diagnostic algorithm and treatment paradigm that me and many others really try to own. But in truth, there's so many more patients at risk for heart failure, so many more kinds of physicians capable of interrupting that natural history. The more we can promulgate these messages about prevention, the better. Now, let's get to the important messages that you just articulated. What's uniquely different from a therapeutic standpoint is this greater emphasis of the RNA compound. Let's start with that first. The data qualifying the use of the RNA compound appeared in 2014. The first mention in a heart failure guideline was in 2016, and it's been endorsed ever since. But originally, it was endorsed only after the patient had been exposed to ACE inhibitor therapy, tolerated such therapy, went through a washout, and then was converted to the RNA compound. A very awkward, cumbersome process, but that's the way in which the original data were generated. Take it another step further. Originally, the RNA compound benefit was noted only in reduced DF heart failure. But now we have relevant databases for those that are hospitalized with heart failure. And we have relevant databases for those with mid-range ejection fraction heart failure. So we begin to see that there is a benefit across the continuum for the RNA compound. So yes, you've heard about the RNA compound before, but not hardly with the point of emphasis that we have at present. That point of emphasis also includes certain patients with HFPEF as well. So 
thinking very differently about the RNA compound, it has fully supplanted the ACE inhibitor, not only as the preferred mechanism of RAS inhibition, but across the continuum, heart failure with reduced DF, hospitalized heart failure, heart failure with mid-range EF, even heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, we believe that these therapies are very important. Pay attention to the class of recommendations for each of those different groups, but nevertheless, that's a very important takeaway. The other very important takeaway is the one that has generated the most excitement. That's use of the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors in the setting of heart failure. I'm going to start with one word, wow. So Dr. Chang, we can think about prevention in the patient with diabetes type 2 with clear evidence that it thwarts the eventual development of heart failure. So if you are a hospitalist, as you are, and you're seeing a patient hospitalized with type 2 diabetes and they're not yet exposed to an SGLT2 inhibitor, you have the opportunity to reduce by about 40% the likelihood that that patient will develop heart failure, particularly if they're concomitantly hypertensive and you lower their blood pressure. You can pay that patient a very dear service by appropriately thinking about prevention. Let's go to HEF. REF, we now understand through a suite of very sophisticated trials that on top of already evidence-based therapy, when you add the SGLT2 inhibitor to a regimen that includes RAS inhibition of beta block and mineralocorticoid antagonist, there are additional benefits on mortality and morbidity. And now we extend that paradigm to have PEF with the SGLT2 inhibitors, but importantly for morbidity only, we still don't have a therapy that improves mortality. But you begin to think that the SGLT2 inhibitors, as we call them, are beneficial from prevention through therapy. I would encourage everyone listening to me to refer to the sole author review article last week. I'm speaking to you in early June of 2022. So in May of 2022, Dr. Eugene Brunwald, sole author review of the Flozins in heart failure. It is brilliant and it really informs this topic very nicely. Well, I feel like I learned so much just listening to you talk through the new therapies. Just for everyone listening, ARNI, A-R-N-I, stands for angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor. And I believe there's only one right now on the market, uh, Sacubitril valsartan. Is that correct? That is correct. It's really exciting to me that we used to teach that there were only therapies for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And now more and more there's suggestion that we can actually help our patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, as well as mid-range ejection fraction. I think I want to focus on the stage categorization, the different stages of heart failure. And let's start with stage A, or those at risk for heart failure. How do we go about identifying patients who are at that stage, and how should we counsel them? You touched on this a little bit, maybe, but is there anything else you'd want to add for resident students and general internists who are listening? So a pithy approach to this is to think about risk factors for heart failure, like we think about risk factors for atherosclerosis, Leslie. For heart failure, those risk factors can be reduced to hypertension, obesity, diabetes. There are other risk factors. Obviously, a familial history is important. Age may be the most important. But if you are caring for patients in an outpatient or inpatient setting and you see that trioka of hypertension, obesity, and diabetes, Think about that patient's accumulated risk for developing heart failure and realize that's a patient in whom really exquisite control of blood pressure to 120 over 80, thinking about the sprint results, 
and then thinking about the benefit of the SGT2 inhibitor might make a big difference. Let's immediately graduate from stage A and go to stage B. Stage B, you may say, okay, so what exactly is that? Those are the patients with asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction. We don't characteristically screen for stage B, but fortuitously, we discover it many times because we get an echo report back or we're doing evaluation for ischemia and we see the ejection fraction comes back subnormal, but there's not any evidence of heart failure. Here is a clinical pearl for you and your peers to take away. Review the biomarker profile at that moment. If you find the patient that has asymptomatic LV dysfunction and an elevated biomarker profile, even if it's still within the range of normal, if it's trending towards the upper range of normal, think about that patient as someone in whom an intervention, early initiation of prototypical evidence-based therapy for HEFREF may change that natural history. The evidence we have really addresses the use of ACE or ARB evidence-based beta blockers and even MRAs, but it's pretty persuasive evidence. And again, it allows us to halt that progression. Everything we want to do is intended to thwart, to prevent, to mitigate the development of symptomatic heart failure and that first hospitalization. What has been one of the pillars of our data set is the realization that once the patient with heart failure is admitted, fundamentally, that is a downward trajectory in their natural history from which we cannot recover. But thinking about stage C, thinking about hospitalized heart failure in stage D, this really is where a lot of resident physicians and fellows spend the bulk of their time. The opportunity should not be missed. The patient is hospitalized. There are several things that are necessary. Confirm the diagnosis because there can be other conditions that masquerade as heart failure, particularly if a patient is known to have heart failure, profound anemia, pneumonia, just to name a few, renal failure, just to name three. The other thing is understand the importance of looking for that precipitating cause. Was it an issue with access to medical therapy? Can the patient afford the medicines? Is the regimen too awkward in the way it's been constructed? Was there an inciting event? Was it in fact an ischemic event? Think of how few times we actually evaluate ischemia in someone that has decompensated heart failure, and that might be the inciting event. Think about whether or not there was, yes, some dietary exposure or alcohol exposure or drug use that would not be recommended. These are the kinds of things you need to think about a priori. If you're rounding with me in the hospital, Dr. Chang, and we go see a heart failure patient and you say, this 69-year-old man presents with heart failure, I will stop you and say, due to. And at that moment, I expect you to tell me what's the etiology of the LV dysfunction and why did that patient decompensate? And I do that because it is a thoughtful exercise to recognize what are the targets of the next steps of the intervention. Then beyond that, here is the really embraceable moment. This patient hospitalized is a captive audience. So if ever there was a time where we wanted to endorse the importance of modifying the medical regimen and establishing a new direction. The hospitalization is it. Published literature tells us patients rarely deviate from the medicines they took in the hospital and the medicines on which they were discharged. And so this is your moment to reconfigure the regimen. I love that framework of thinking about what caused the LV dysfunction and what precipitated their current admission. Now that we're talking about taking care of a patient who is hospitalized with uh, volume overload and setting up their heart failure, I read in the guidelines that we typically try to continue what they're currently on for guideline-directed medical therapies. Let's say their kidney function is a little bit worse than baseline. I've seen a lot of hospitalists and residents discontinue or hold ACE, ARB, or ARNIs in that setting, and sometimes they're not reinitiated before patient is discharged. How do you typically think about 
when a patient is admitted, whether you to continue those therapies. And is hospitalization an appropriate time to be thinking about switching them to an ARNI? So this is really a great line of discussion for us because it really gets us to a discussion about what is often referred to as AKI, acute kidney injury. Nephrologists and expert heart failure physicians will tell you that that phenomenon happens much less frequently than it's purported. It's important to understand that we first have to start with whether or not we know there to be intrinsic renal disease, particularly during the dynamics of aggressive diuresis and the initiation of evidence-based therapy. We almost uniformly see a decrement in the estimated GFR, which then recovers. In fact, we view that moment of renal autoregulation reset, if you will, as a good sign for a favorable response to medical therapy long-term. We typically use a threshold of a delta that is less than 0.3 milligrams per deciliter on the simcreatinine measurement as tolerable. Anything greater than that, we really do want to have a conversation with our renal colleagues. Many experienced physicians, not residents, not fellows in early career physicians, but many experienced physicians miss the opportunity to use loop diuretics correctly. Let me talk you through this, Dr. Chang. Total, the daily dose of loop diuretic in ferrosamide equivalents, if you will, so we can have a common nomenclature. Get that number in hand. Say it's 80 milligrams. Double that number and make that the first dose of the intravenously administered loop diuretic given on repeated doses at every eight or 12 hour interval. Again, tally the daily dose of orally administered loop diuretic as ferrosamide equivalents, double it, then give that dose every eight to 12 hours. That's a profound difference than the way in which many people try to decongest the patient. There can be an expectation of changes in renal function, but that will effectuate an appropriate diuresis. But then understand as well that once the patient is decongested, there is nothing that remains therapeutic about the exposure to the loop diuretic. And at that point, it begins to compromise blood pressure and makes it difficult to give evidence-based medical therapy. So be dynamic, show some plasticity, use loop diuretics aggressively up front to decongest the patient, help them feel better, then modify that dose sufficient to preserve renal function and to allow the initiation of evidence-based therapy. Only in the patient with well-established known pre-existing renal disease should we express the kinds of hesitancies that we typically see. I try my best when I'm on service to eliminate any standing hold orders. I think if a patient has a question of blood pressure, you don't hold the medicine. You go to the bedside and make an evaluation and determine if the patient's symptomatic. That's a really helpful way to think about how much ferrosamide to start with or how much loop diuretic to start with in thinking about decongesting a patient. So if they're on 40 milligrams, say, of ferrosamide twice a day at home orally, you would total that to 80 milligrams oral and then start with 80 milligrams IV either three times a day or twice a day to start decongesting the patient. So I wanted to get to this point of, I feel like there's a lot of hesitancy in transitioning individuals to Sacubitril Valsartan while they're in the hospital. Is that something you can think about doing for a patient, let's say on lisinopril, giving them time to have a washout period and then discharging them on the ARNI rather than continuing them on lisinopril on discharge for someone else to transition them to an ARNI outpatient? So obviously that is clearly contextual. If a patient's already on an ARB, the transition 
requires no pause, no delay, and it's ideal to start those therapies soon. But let me give you one other pearl. There's almost no reason to withhold an SGLT2 inhibitor. Cost is a consideration, and a very low estimated GFR is an important consideration. Withholding the therapy for someone with type 1 diabetes is also an important consideration. So I've given you all the caveats. But the reason I'm emphasizing starting the SGLT2 inhibitor during the hospitalization is that the published literature shows something that has not yet been sufficiently highlighted, but it needs to be emphasized today. The benefit of the SGLT2 inhibitors is almost immediate. The curves in the referent clinical trials began to diverge, so much so that by 30 days after initiation, there was already evidence of statistical importance in the benefit of the SGLT2 inhibitor, meaning that for that patient that's hospitalized, that is facing this, as I said, downward pivot on their prognostic trajectory, initiating the SGLT2 inhibitor early in the course provides a profound benefit that I think cannot be overcome if we miss that opportunity. So yes, start the RNA compound if the patient's already in ARB, plan to make the transition if not, but think very carefully about adding the SGLT2 inhibitor if it's available and there are no contraindications and you've had a conversation about safety. Think about starting that early. The benefits are quite reasonable. Got it. So strong yes for an SGLT2 inhibitor. And this is across all ejection fraction ranges, both for heart failure with reduced EF and preserved EF. Is that correct? That's correct, because we are predicating a lot of our comments on Preserve, the trial that used empagliflozin. But we realize that we already have a top-line result from the trial studying empagliflozin in the same setting of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And so um, we have even more confidence that these therapies are appropriate across the board for patients with heart failure of all phenotypes. Got it. Got it. Now, let's say you admitted a patient with new decompensated heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. seems like from what I've read, there's a little bit of controversy about whether to try to sneak on low doses of all four of the guideline-directed medical therapies or try to titrate each one individually to max doses. Do you have a framework for how you think about starting these therapies in someone with newly diagnosed uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? So this is one of those moments, Dr. Chang, where clinical judgment predominates. We know the data. We know that this quartet of therapies or quadruple therapies really is the ideal approach in today's world. And we all wrestle with how can you do this? There are some published algorithms that get us there, but they're mostly empiric. Judgment helps us here because if we're thinking about how we understand these drugs to work, we know that for the mineralocorticone antagonists, there is basically a one-step titration, meaning if we are starting at 12 and a half going to 25 for spinal lactone and starting at 25 going to 50 for a plurinome, so that's pretty straightforward. So that can be started with minimal variations in blood pressure. We know that we have reasonable evidence that there's a dose response curve for the beta blocker, but we also recognize that that titration does not need to be rapid. And so if it's carbidolol 3.125 twice a day and just hold and wait until the outpatient setting to make that adjustment. So the first two legs of the quartet are relatively simple. That gets us then to the SGLT2 inhibitor and the RNA. Well, it turns out the SGLT2 inhibitor is a singular dose. If we're thinking about dipagliflozin, it's 10 milligrams once a day, done. You just start the therapy, done. So it really does 
let us understand that it really is the RNA compound, if that's the preferred RAS inhibition, ACE inhibitors are still effective, where we have some more angst about the titration. But I think we can take care of several legs of this four-legged structure, if you will, in a very straightforward way. But judgment prevails. And I think we want to be careful and do singular things, observe the responses, because we're trying to build confidence with the patient. The patient has to go home and be compliant with this somewhat complicated regimen. So making certain they're tolerating the therapies comfortably is very important. That's helpful. Thank you for that. So I want to quickly summarize guideline-directed medical therapies. So what we know about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, definitely SGLT2 inhibitors, the beta blockers, the spironolactone, noroplaronone, and then the ARNI, if they can, or the ACE and the ARB. And then for those with improved ejection fraction, continuing that quartet of guideline-directed medical therapy. For patients with mid-range or mildly reduced EF or preserved EF, how do you decide besides the SGLT2 inhibitor which patients may benefit from an ARNI or mineral corticoid receptor antagonist? Let's say that I'm very persuaded by the referent trial for patients who have PEF and use of the ARNI compound. I really think that that group of patients, particularly in women with ejection fractions up to 50 to 55%, seem to generate not just a reasonable response, but an important response when exposed to the RNA compound. And so in my mind's eye, that patient that has heart failure with mid-range EF, and nothing is a class one indication for that, but in my mind's eye, the SGLT2 inhibitor stands out because the most recent data, again, recruited patients with an ejection fraction of 40% or greater in the flozin trials using HEFPEF and the RNA compound. When HEFPEF was studied, the signal of benefit actually went all the way up to 50 to 55%. So I think there's some evidence there that that mid-range ejection fraction group, either on the RNA compound or the SGLT2 inhibitor, probably stands the most to gain. And that's my approach with that. For the group with heart failure with improved ejection fraction, that's a bit easier because whatever regimen was associated with that improvement, I'm using my language carefully. We can't say that guideline-directed medical therapy caused the increase in ejection fraction, but was associated, yes. All we simply do in that setting, and I've got a number of patients for whom I provide care in that category, we just simply reduce those doses to once-a-day therapies making it as easy as possible for the patient to stay exposed to those therapies and reap that continued benefit. So I think that group is easier to handle. Got it. Thanks so much for that summary. So Leslie, there is one thing that I think is important. Okay. One of the really important steps taken by the guideline writing committee and published in the guideline was a summary of the things we don't know. We've emphasized prevention, the different phenotypes, but for balance, using a word that we articulate frequently, we need to address the fact that we don't have all the questions answered. For example, we don't know how to reduce mortality in HEFPEF. It's a much more complicated process because there's so many different iterations of HEFPEF. For example, we still don't have a unified recommendation on sodium intake. As much as we argue and promulgate the notion of aggressive salt restriction, We just don't have the evidence base. And even in the most recent well-done 
sodium trials, we still don't come up with a signal beyond quality of life that really informs what we should do next with this. And as you and I have just discussed, we have not sorted out the right stepwise algorithm to initiate all four therapies. I've given you some insights thinking about what are the target doses and what's the rapidity with which we need to get to those target doses. And so that's more empiricism, but we don't have the evidence. So I want to be clear. We haven't answered every question. We went out of our way in this guideline to actually identify the prevailing questions. I think that's helpful for the user that's really interested in heart failure. Yeah, I appreciate that acknowledgement of the uncertainties that remain. I feel like every patient that I admit gets no more than two grams of sodium, and I didn't realize that there wasn't great data for that. I think that wraps up our content for this episode. I think talking to you and reading through the guidelines has actually made me much more optimistic for the treatment of patients with this very common condition. So thank you so much for your insight, Dr. Yancey, and for chatting with us today. It's been a pleasure, Dr. Cheng. I wish you well in all of your activities, and thank you for the invitation to be a part of this. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of the NEJM Group.